Thank you, Aaron. Yes, Aaron gave me that nickname, JDYP, um, which does not, does not apply anymore since I turned 50 this year. I, man, it's so great to be back here. I have so many good memories of this church and of living in Stillwater, kind of raising our kids here. And uh, I'm excited for you and uh, for your call to have Wilson as your pastor. I'm excited for him to come on full-time this summer and to see what the Lord has. Um, when I found out I was preaching uh, yesterday, I, uh, I, I learned that you guys were going through the book of Ruth. And, and uh, Ruth chapter 4, I said, I've preached Ruth 4 before, but uh, it's been a while. So I looked through my files and uh, I saw the timestamp. Um, I think it was October of 2013, which means I preached that sermon here in my last full year as pastor here. And I have a rule that even though a lot of you are not here for that, I never preach the same sermon twice in a church. So I then went on your website and uh, looked at uh, the sermons that had been preached here, and it confirmed something that I uh, have suspected, which is that you are like most churches, and that you've probably never heard a sermon from the book of Zephaniah. Uh, in fact, you may not know where Zephaniah is or have read it, but it is. It is in the Bible, I promise. Um, it's just four books from the end of the Old Testament. It's, a, it's in a group of books in the Old Testament known as the Minor Prophets. And uh, they are not minor because they're unimportant, they're minor, uh, they're called that because they tend to be shorter books than the more the major prophets. And uh, Zephaniah is short. It is only three chapters long, but it packs a punch. Uh, the makers of the Bible Project declare that Zephaniah contains some of the most intense images of love and justice of any of the prophets. It shows God's passion to rescue his world from human evil and violence in order to create a world where everyone can flourish in safety and peace. And, uh, well, we don't have time to go through the whole book, but uh, the basic structure of the book, there's two parts to the We on? There we go. Okay. Great. Question. What is it about Hollywood that they think that heaven is going to be boring? I want you to think about movies or TV shows that you've seen that depict the afterlife. It's typically either sort of a laid-back, dreamy place where everybody kind of gets to do what they want as long as they're nice, or sort of this bland bureaucracy. I think of uh, 1979's Heaven Can Wait. Uh, Warren Beatty dies, and he immediately finds himself walking in among the clouds, and this angel in a business suit comes up and directs him to get in line for a, onto a plane. Don't get out of line. Or 1991's uh, Defending Your Life. Albert Brooks dies, and he winds up in uh, the afterlife in this place called uh, Judgment City, which is really just a bureaucratic nightmare. Uh, the only appeal is that Meryl Streep is there. And then 2020's Pixar movie, Soul. Jamie Foxx, his character, 
falls down a manhole, dies, and finds himself in a heaven that is both laid back and dreamy and bureaucratic. I mean, is it any wonder that everyone's afraid of death? They're afraid that heaven is going to be boring. And yet the Bible says that heaven will be anything but boring. After all, uh, how could how could a God who created stars and mountains and babies and music, how could he inhabit a place that is dull? In fact, when any of the biblical writers get a glimpse of heaven, they are uniformly overcome with awe and wonder and often run out of ways to really describe what they're seeing. Have to use metaphor a lot of the time. Well, these verses in Zephaniah are, they are a picture of God and his people in glory. And, and the first thing that God does in these verses is what we do at the beginning of every worship service. God invites you to rejoice and delight in him. Look at verses 14 and 15. Sing aloud. Shout, rejoice, and exalt with all your heart. Why? Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. I have a friend who was told by his insurance company that he was being sued by a person that he had had an accident with. And uh, it was his fault. But the insurance company told him that, uh, you know, he's suing you and... This might be a case where uh, the, the summary judgment could go beyond what you're covered for, which means it could eat into your life savings and then some. And so for a year, my friend lived with this dread of what could happen. Thinking about, you know, some judge or jury siding with his adversary and awarding him more than he could pay, destroying his financial future. Well, finally, when the assurance company called him and said, listen, this case is closed, we've settled it, you don't owe any more money, my friend Jason said that he has never been more relieved in his life. You know what he did? He threw a party. A case is closed party for some of his closest friends. Uh, now, the first two and a half chapters of Zephaniah, as I, I talked about, they're really about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of reckoning. And for Zephaniah's audience, the day of the Lord was not far away. In fact, only 50 years after Zephaniah prophesied, the, the, the Lord, this is 586 B.C., the Lord would send the nation of Babylon to come into Israel destroy, defeat their army, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, take some of their best and brightest people into exile into Babylon. This was kind of like 9-11 times 10 for the nation of Israel. But there's also another day of the Lord that Zephaniah points to. There's that one in uh, 500 years before Christ. But then other day of the Lord that is pointed to is when Jesus returns. Right? 
the, that's another day of the Lord, the final day of human history, when God will judge the living and the dead, when all our secrets will be told, when we'll be judged for the way that we have lived our lives. And for the guilty, the day of the Lord is the worst day possible, isn't it? And all of us are guilty, aren't we? Well, the good news is, is there's a third day of the Lord. Between that Babylonian uh, raid and the final judgment. And that day of the Lord, we celebrate on Good Friday. It's the day when Jesus was crucified on the cross. Took our place, died for our sins And he was judged in our stead. And now the only way that we can escape final judgment that we deserve is by putting our faith in him. And standing, as Wilson's been talking about, in the righteousness of Christ. See, without Jesus, you would have to answer for every lie that you've ever told. Every lustful, hateful thought that you've ever had. Every last sin must be paid for. And it was on the cross. Now, what should our reaction to that news be? We ought to throw a case's closed party, shouldn't we? That ought to be the biggest relief, the best news that we have ever heard. We should sing aloud, shout, rejoice, and exult with all our hearts. When was the last time you did that? Maybe the last time your team won a championship? Maybe if you're a Chiefs or Eagles fan, you'll do that if they win tonight. Maybe the last time you beat your brother in Madden football or Halo or I don't know. I don't do video games. But pry a little bit further. Let me ask you this. Why don't we sing and shout and rejoice with all our hearts in worship. Uh, in worship of the one who has saved us. Is it because we're Presbyterian and everything must be decent and in order? Well, let me tell you. God is telling you here through the prophet Jeremiah, Zephaniah that it is decent and it is in order to shout and exalt with all your heart. Now, some people have asked, why, why does God command us to worship him? so much. I mean, isn't that, isn't that kind of narcissistic? Needing to be worshipped all the time? Well, first thing I would say is what John Piper likes to say, which is that our hearts, we were created to worship. You're always worshipping something. You can't never not worship. You're going to worship something. And for God to encourage you to worship anything other than him, is irrational. In fact, it's idolatry for him to encourage you to worship anything other than the highest good, the greatest uh, being of ultimate worth, and that is God himself. But the other thing to say in answer to that question, why does God want us to worship him so much, is is this, that you celebrate what you love and enjoy, don't you? I mean, when when I find a new restaurant... What do I do? The first thing I do, I start telling people about it. Oh, man, you got to try this new place. The food is great. 
I, I celebrate it by telling people about it, don't I? Every time I, I, I see the movie that I think is going to be his best movie of the year, I start telling people. This time last year, I was telling people, you got to go see the movie Pig. It's so great. It's not even the best picture because they never reward the best picture. But you got to tell people, right? Talking about it, praising it, it's part of the experience of enjoying something or someone. When God calls you to worship, he's calling you to delight in him and enjoy him. Because guess what? God also delights and rejoices in you. Verses 16 to 17, they make up one of the most beautiful passages in the whole Bible. In fact, I would say one of the most beautiful passages in any text in any language. In verse 16, Zephaniah starts by telling the people to fear not. Even though, I mean, he is called down fire and brimstone for the first two and a half chapters of this book. He has talked about how God's fierce anger is coming and his, his, his threat to sweep everything off the face of the earth. But here he says, but you, you don't have to be afraid of that. Why? Because God is with you. He's in your midst. And he's determined to save and he's able to save because he is the mighty one. But God is not just mighty and powerful. He's also tender. He's pictured, the prophet pictures him as tender here. And he is not shy with his emotions. He rejoices over you with gladness. Now, it's funny how people different, different people greet you, right? With my friends, I, I get different greetings. Sometimes I get the smile or the nod, head nod, you know, or with Aaron, it's JYP. Uh, with, with a guy in my church in Tulsa, he likes to say when he sees me, doors, 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 doors. But my favorite greeting of all time is my friend Michael when I was in college. When Michael would see me, he'd throw his head back and he'd say, and he'd add all these extra letters to my name. But I didn't care because he was happy to see me. And I was just delighted at his greeting of me. How humbling is it that God is delighted to see you, to be with you. He rejoices over you with gladness. And then he goes on, he will quiet you by his love. When you had nightmares as a kid, you woke up screaming and afraid of what was in the closet. What was, what was the only thing that could calm you down? Mom or dad coming in, right, putting their arm around you, quieting you with their love. That's the kind of father that God is. And then the kicker, I think, he will exalt over you with loud singing. Now, over and over in the Bible, we are commanded to sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to Him with loud voices. Doesn't even have to be melodic voice. Loud voices. But here, we find out it goes both ways. Not only would we sing to Him, but God sings to us. He sings over us. He exalts over us with loud singing. How crazy is that? That God is so moved by love for you that he 
exalts over you with singing. He bursts out in song at the mere thought of you. Now, the question we might ask is now, when is, when is that going to happen? When's gonna God God can be so happy to see me? Well, certainly in the future. Right? Some of this is future language. That time I will bring you in. Certainly when we get to the new heavens and the new earth. But it is also a reality now. God's joy in us is not just a future emotion. Um, Recently, I was, uh, I was doing a Bible study, and I led a couple of songs on my guitar beforehand. And I introduced a song to the group called, He Will Hold Me Fast. And there's a line, I don't know if you guys sing this song, but there's a line in it, I think it's in the second verse, that says, those he saves are his blank. Those he saves are his, what do you think the rest of that is? Those he saves are his burden. Those he saves are his responsibility, his lucky sinners. No, what the line says is those he saves are his delight. When I was introducing that song, I kind of had to breathe real quick to keep from getting choked up. But it's true. God doesn't, Jesus doesn't save you because he has to. He doesn't save you because he's just obligated. Against his better judgment, I guess I'll save them. No. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, in his great mercy, looked on us in love. We are his delight. We are what bring him joy. Unfortunately, almost none of us really believe that. And we don't really believe that God delights in us. But I am convinced that if we really believed it, we would have true freedom. You would be truly free. In the most biblical sense of that word. What is, what is true freedom? Well, first off, I think the first way to freedom is to let go of the fear of death. Little secret, almost everybody you know is afraid of dying. They may not talk about it, but so many of us are afraid of dying. And it, and it keeps us up at night, it keeps us from being courageous, it keeps us from thinking too deeply about big spiritual ultimate issues, it keeps people from really living. William Wallace was right. All men die, not all men truly live. Why? Because they're afraid of dying. The reason they're afraid is either fear of the unknown or fear that I'm going to get what I deserve. But if you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, what awaits you is a singing, rejoicing God who is delighted to welcome you into his kingdom. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in The Last Battle, that when we die, we realize that we were part of the story, a bigger story, and that this life was just the cover and the title page. And that the next life, we will begin chapter one of the greatest story that no one on earth has ever read, in which every chapter is better than the one before. 
But we also get a hint of what true freedom might look like in verse 19 here. When the prophet says, I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. He says a similar thing in verse 20. I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. Interesting. I'm going to make you famous. I'm going to make you praised. We spend so much time trying to win people's praise, don't we? Trying to get people to think and see how good and great we really are. Spend so much time doing that. It all sometimes it almost feels like a prison of performance. But God says the only praise that really matters is mine. And you already have it. If you are in Christ, you already have it. But not only that, in the end, I will make it so that the whole world praises you. Isn't that amazing? Somehow being a child of God, being tied in with God's glory brings us glory. No matter what people think of you now in the last day, in the final judgment, they will praise you as an overcomer in Christ, as a king and priest in the eternal kingdom of God. I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. Now, if you could bring that future truth into your present reality, I think you would be free. You'd be free from that performance acceptance treadmill that we're all kind of on. You'd be free in ways you, you'd never imagine. I know a guy who years ago uh, gambled away most of his family's savings, betting on football and basketball. And uh, when his wife found out, she was understandably very angry, especially since this is the second time this had happened. And uh, he came to me, afraid that his wife was going to leave him, thinking that maybe she probably should, but that if she did, he would be all alone. And so I asked him, I said, don't you have any friends? He said, no, not really. I said, why not? After some hemming and hawing, he said, I guess, I guess I'm afraid to let anyone close because if they really knew me, they would be appalled. Now, there's a lot of things that we needed to talk about, a lot of conversations and follow-up conversations we need to have. But I was convinced in that moment, but what he needed to hear was that the Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty to save. He rejoices over you with gladness exalts over you with loud singing. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this little hidden treasure, this little picture of you and your character that's hidden out uh, in the, this minor prophet, in that part of the Bible we don't read a lot, but is eternally true. And in this picture of you that took on flesh when Jesus came to earth to seek and to save the lost, which was us until that time. And now, Father, as we <laughs> believe 
more and more that you really do love us, that you really do want what is best for us. You really are working on us to more and more put to death sin and more and more live to Christ. And as we believe those things, uh, that we would be changed of our insecurities, that we would be free of our fear of death and of judgment, that there is no condemnation for all who are in Christ. What beautiful words those are that you sing over us as our God and our King. And even as we learn to be loved by you, may we learn to love one another with this same kind of reckless love. Exulting in one another and in your salvation for us. In the name of Jesus, our friend and Savior, we pray.